And Lord, as we prepare our hearts now to come to Your Word, we ask, O Lord, that You would feed us with Your Word. You know what needs we have, whether that be to be rebuked or corrected or encouraged or strengthened or comforted. Lord, You know. You know. And so we ask, Lord, that You would use Your Word, that we would hear the voice of our Good Shepherd and that He would attend to us as Your Word is preached, that we may hear and believe the Gospel and that we may grow in Christ's likeness. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 14. And we'll be continuing in our study of 1 Samuel today, looking at verses 24 to 35 uh, as we continue in our study. Uh, earlier on in our study of 1 Samuel, we had one sermon called the failure of uh, carnal, godless religiosity. Uh, then we did the cost of carnal, godless religiosity. Uh, today's message is titled, The Cure for Carnal, Godless Religiosity. It was as much an issue for people in those days, over 3,000 years ago, as it is for us today. Everywhere you look, there is some type of religion. But every religion outside of the Christian faith is carnal and godless. I was having a discussion with an atheist this week who said, every religion's basically the same. And I said, you know what? You're actually right. I said, apart from Christianity, every religion is the same. Because every religion involves working your way to God. Doing this and doing that in order that you may qualify yourself for God. In fact, this is the issue that the Protestant Reformation was driven by was the idea that works, that we must work for our salvation, that it was by grace, but not grace alone, that it was through faith, but not through faith alone. And when you don't have grace alone and faith alone, what you end up with is carnal, godless religiosity. Now, if you look around at the world today, that's what you see everywhere. You also see war, don't we, in our time. And any time, especially that the modern day nation of Israel engages in some type of military conflict, you seem to see the same questions coming up. Questions like, uh, is, are, are we in the end times? And I, I'd say, you know, there are really two answers to that question. Are we in the end times? There's a very straightforward answer, and then there's a more nuanced answer. And those answers actually aren't necessarily uh, completely the same. The straightforward answer is yes. Yes, we are in the end times, because the end times began on Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost was, of course, the day that marked the birth of the church. And the end times will continue until Christ returns one day. The more nuanced answer uh, to the question, are, are we living in the end times, would be something like this. Um, you know, if you mean, uh, is the end near? If you mean, you know, it, does, uh, do we think that, that the end is near? That Jesus is coming back soon? Uh, is that what you mean by living in the end times? Because the answer to that is nobody knows. 
Nobody knows, but the end is sure to come. Christ is sure to return. And thus we should always live our lives as if Jesus is about to return any minute now. The person who is disciplined enough, and it does take discipline, to live their life like that, like Jesus could come back at any moment, is going to be watching the way that they walk. The church has always affirmed that the return of Christ is imminent. That is, that it can happen at any moment. Uh, There are no signs that we're waiting for to happen. There are no miracles. There are no world events that must first unfold before Jesus returns. He could return at any moment. And the church has always held this. And anyone who tells you any differently is mistaken. Uh, The disciples and the followers of Jesus might have had a notion that the end times, that is the the age of the church, uh, would be a time of ease and comfort. We know differently, don't we? After all, the the Jewish expectation of a Messiah uh, included the expectation that when the Messiah comes, He would establish His kingdom and the people would have their enemies subdued or, or wiped off the face of the earth. But to ensure that Timothy didn't have that idea, didn't have that notion, that he didn't hold the impression that life in, uh, in ministry in the age of the church would be easy, Paul wrote this to him in the final letter that Paul wrote, which is, of course, 2 Timothy. He said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, In the last days, difficult times will come. Now, he's not saying necessarily the end, the end. You know, is, he, is he saying that things are going to get more difficult as we get closer to the return of Christ? And the answer is not necessarily. He's not necessarily saying that. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but they won't necessarily. That's not what Paul is trying to say. He's warning Timothy that life in ministry in this age, life as a Christian in the end times, that is the current age, would have really serious challenges two to five he said for men will be lovers of self lovers of money boastful arrogant revilers disobedient to parents ungrateful unholy unloving irreconcilable malicious gossips without self-control brutal haters of good treacherous reckless conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now some people take that to mean that as we get closer to the return of Christ, this is how men will be. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is simply describing the way that people have always been. People do what people do. Fallen people do fallen things. They always have and they always will. Their nature is as depraved today as it was as soon as Adam and Eve fell into sin. And as Paul goes through this this list of characteristics that mark the unregenerate person, he seems to at least possibly go from uh, the least dangerous characteristics, although they're still bad, to the most dangerous characteristics. Because the last one that he names here is absolutely terrifying. The last characteristic, holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, carnal, godless religiosity is an absolutely terrifying thought. 
What does it mean to hold to a form of godliness but deny its power? It means to have some type of external, outward appearance of moral uprightness and religiosity. And yet, the power that enables true uprightness and true worship and true religion isn't there. It's like a machine that is unplugged. And what is this power that drives true moral uprightness and true religion? The power is the gospel. It's, it's in walking, with fellowship, walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's in having the Holy Spirit abiding within us, residing within us, guiding us, and enabling us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. If you consider that Paul begins Ephesians 4, chapter 4, by instructing the believers in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, you've got to understand that apart from the Holy Spirit being in them, being active in their lives, guiding them and empowering them, he would be instructing a radio to play when it's unplugged and has no battery, if they were unregenerate. These are things that can only be done because the Holy Spirit enables us to do them. And it's possible for someone to be unplugged. It's possible for someone to be so morally upright in appearance, nevertheless, that they even deceive themselves. And that is a terrifying thought. It's a frightening thought. Maybe you've known somebody who's like that. Maybe you once even were somebody like that. I pray that such could not be said of any of you today, now, however. And yet every pastor has to keep in mind that in this age, in the age of the church, Jesus warned that the wheat and the tares would grow together. They'd be uh, growing in the same fields. In other words, there will be false converts among real converts. And so if, if, that's, if, this, if that's you, having the, the, the outward religiosity without having the power that truly motivates it, the passage that we come to today is going to be a picture of this form of godliness that denies its power. And it will show us how vain such a facade truly is. And it will show us the cure. We will see the cure for, us, for it. But the point of the passage that we come to today is that our doctrine and our deeds, that is our beliefs and our behaviors, need to be informed and guided by God's Word, enabled by His Spirit, and followed in sincere humility. Let me say that again. The point of our passage today is that our doctrine and our deeds need to be guided and informed by God's Word, enabled by His Spirit, and followed in sincere humility. Humility. Now, the previous passage here in First uh, First Samuel uh, ended on a very high note. It, it was a victorious note. First Samuel chapter fourteen, verse twenty-three, told us, "So the Lord delivered Israel that day." And you'd think that from there it would just be nothing but you know butterflies and flowers. It would just be good stuff, right? You'd think that anything that came after that could only be positive. But the passage that follows after that is actually anything but positive as far as Israel and King Saul were concerned. Now you'll remember that the son of Saul, Jonathan, had struck the garrison of the Philistines back in chapter 13, which provoked the Philistines 
to rise up and go to war with Israel, and Israel was completely unprepared for any type of military response. And so instead of fighting, the Israelites were completely routed. Most of the army of Israel went into hiding. Uh, King Saul had been instructed to go to Uh, had been instructed to go to Gilgal and wait seven days for Samuel. And he was told that Samuel would then uh, meet him there and tell him what he was to do. But if you remember what Saul did, uh, we saw that as the minutes ticked down on that seventh day that he was supposed to be uh, waiting, Saul decided that he couldn't wait any longer, and so he worshipped God in a way that God's Word doesn't instruct. And as a result... God rejected Saul as Israel's king, and Samuel harshly rebuked him and would no longer guide Saul as Israel's new king. As a result of King Saul's sin, all of Israel were oppressed by the Philistines. And King Saul and his 600 men just retreated and camped out in a place where the Philistines could not easily reach them. But as King Saul sat under a tree, a pomegranate tree, doing absolutely nothing to, uh, to remedy the oppression of his people. We saw that his son, Jonathan, went out once again, trusting in the Lord, and he took on the Philistine army by himself with his armor bearer. And upon seeing that the Philistines were uh, getting just smashed, Uh, And and realizing that it was his own son, Jonathan, who was doing the smashing, King Saul suddenly decided to join in and help. And that's what brought us to the high point where we read, So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth-Aven. In the very next verse that follows, however, we're going to go back a little bit. Uh, as the author will show us how badly King Saul failed that day. He's going to sort of, the author's going to sort of fill in some of the details for us so that we can see how Saul on that day was guilty of having a form of godliness that denied its power. So let's start with verses 24 to 30. It says, Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. For Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. If I hadn't warned you ahead of time that the passage that we were going to be looking at today is negative, who in their right mind would have ever expected to read immediately after, and the Lord delivered them on that day, to read, now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. 
It shouldn't have read that way, should it have? That should strike us as sounding very strange, very odd. But the reason that the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day was not because the Lord didn't do enough. It had nothing to do with the Lord, actually. It was because of their own king. King Saul, who had been doing absolutely nothing to remedy the, the, the oppression of his people, to contribute any kind of remedy uh, to the oppression of his people, was forced out of his lazy, lethargic state when Jonathan availed himself to the Lord's service and began slaying the Philistines. And as Saul rose up out of his lethargic state to action, he issued this foolish, foolish order, probably in an attempt to inspire his army, I guess, but which almost ensured that the Israelites would lose. And had it not been for the Lord's faithfulness, I think we can most certainly say they would have lost. They would have lost. But his order was this, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. Now under normal circumstances, this kind of leadership would virtually guarantee that his army would, physiological level, people need food to fuel their daily activities, right? Uh, you think that going to battle and chasing an army for 20 miles might take a little bit of energy? You think you might be a little bit hungry along the way? You know, whether they're just going to be involved in, in hand-to-hand combat with the Philistines or, or chasing them, it's not something that you want to have to do in a state of hunger. But just as bad as that is the fact that King Saul has made this all about him and his glory. Look at what he says. He said, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. Do you see what he's done there? Do you see how he's made it all about King Saul? All of a sudden, King Saul is so worried about avenging himself against his enemies, huh? That should strike us as kind of odd. What was the point of making such a, an oath, a threat, to his army anyway? I, I'd say that there are at least a couple reasons. First, maybe he did it to, uh, to make sure that the Israelite army didn't you know, stop in the enemy camp to loot it and uh, look for food and other treasures. Maybe you know, to, to ensure that they just stayed focused on the battle. Maybe that's why he gave this threat. Uh, keep in mind that a soldier at that time did have to provide for himself. He had to find his own food. And so maybe Saul thought that it would have been tempting for them to grab everything that they possibly could instead of finishing the job. And so maybe he's trying to ensure that they do finish the job, that they just stay focused. But if that is indeed the case, it was unrealistically and unnecessarily harsh, not to mention completely foolish. What kind of warrior, what kind of commanding warrior would think that an entire army can fight all day without consuming anything to nourish them and strengthen them? I mean, even if this is why Saul made this, this oath, this threat, and even if he meant no real harm toward his army, it was still extremely, extremely foolish because his order resulted in the men of Israel being hard-pressed that day. 
Besides, if King Saul truly believed that God was the one who was going to win the battle for them, if he truly believed that as he should have, then it wouldn't have been necessary to be so harsh toward his men. But this brings us to, uh, to a, a second possible reason that he issues this, this threat, this oath, uh, which I believe is probably the correct one because it's supported by other things that he's done recently in our text. Uh, I think it's more likely that he did it to sound and to appear very religious, to look like he was a righteous man. Consider the way that he has become more and more outwardly religious ever since he was rejected by God and rebuked by Samuel. When he realized that Jonathan was out slaying the Philistines, he summoned for the ark of God to be brought to him. But when it was taking too long for them to discern God's will, he just interrupted it, refusing to wait to hear what God's will might be refusing to wait for God to reveal His will. Uh, just as he had an appearance of godliness without its power by summoning the ark of God, I believe he's now keeping up uh, a form, an appearance of godliness by instructing the men of Israel to fast. Maybe, just maybe, even in an attempt to manipulate God, uh, to make sure that God is for them or to earn God's favor for the men of Israel in battle. Either way, it's faithless. It's just an outward appearance of religion. But this one verse, verse 24, believe me, it was tempting to just preach a whole sermon on verse 24. This one verse sets the stage for Saul to really, really make a complete fool of himself before all of his countrymen. As a king, as a, as a leader of any sort, for that, uh, for that matter, Saul made at least two primary mistakes here. First of all, it was clear that he was more concerned with his own agenda and with his own glory than he was with God's agenda and God's glory. He referred to the Philistines as my enemies rather than as God's enemies. And it's true, both statements are, are, are true, and yet the oppression of Israel uh, and the war that ensued wasn't driven by you know, a personal animosity between Saul and the Philistines. It was actually driven by the animosity that the Philistines had toward God and by default, therefore, God's people. But Saul has made it all about his agenda and his glory instead of God's agenda and God's glory. Now don't get me wrong, that's not a mistake that only kings are capable of making. You and I can do the same thing. When someone is in a position of leadership, it's doubly shameful. It's possible for parents, for example, to do the same thing by coming up with overly harsh household rules that are without any sort of biblical warrant and are lacking entirely in grace. Uh, but, it's, but at least as tragic as that is when an elder or pastor of a church invents rules of conduct that simply reflect his personal uh, ideas, his personal preferences, his personal agenda, rather than God's. Uh, an example might be that a pastor requires that people wear long pants to church, and anyone who dares to come in wearing shorts is turned away. Now, that's not such an issue up here in the Pacific Northwest, but let me tell you about all the stories I heard about that kind of thing in the South. That was a very real thing. People would be turned away because they were under 
dressed for church. Where is there a biblical warrant for that? There's not. There's not. We, we should never be more concerned about our agendas and our preferences and our glory than we are with God's. Never. The second mistake that Saul made is actually sort of similar to the first. Maybe it, it sort of flows out of the first mistake. Because Saul was more concerned with his own agenda than he was with God's, and more concerned with his own glory than he was with God's, he issued a decree that required more of God's people than God himself required. Do you see how subtle that is? Do you see how easily that happens? What did Saul require? He required that they fast as they go into battle. Did God require that they fast as they go into battle? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. So he's requiring more than God does of God's people. In other words, Saul's issue, his decree, boils down to legalism. Now, just to clarify, legalism doesn't mean a desire to be obedient unto God. Somebody who, who has no desire to be obedient unto God, when they are encouraged to be obedient unto, unto God, they look at that as being legalism. They say, oh, you're just being a legalist. That's not what legalism is. You might hear some people refer to Christians who are serious about obedience unto God as legalists. That is not what legalism is. Legalism is adding to what God has said. It's requiring more than God has required. Legalism is forcing one's own personal convictions or agendas upon others as Saul has done here. And the response is something like, you know, if you're, if you're talking about people who have no, no interest in being obedient to God, their response is usually something like, well, you know, I'm not under the law. And that's right, the Bible actually does say that you are not under the law. But all that means is that the law no longer has the power to condemn you. And yet the Scriptures elsewhere tell us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is uh, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. What portions of Scripture are profitable for all those things? All of it, including the law. So it's not like the law no longer has any sort of purpose in the life of the Christian. If you believe in Jesus, what it means is that the law doesn't serve the purpose of condemning you. It can't condemn you. But it does serve the purpose of guiding us in terms of living a life that is pleasing unto God. The problem is that the news of this order that Saul has decreed didn't reach everyone. We're immediately told that Jonathan, his son, heard nothing about it. And we can assume that that's probably because Jonathan was the one leading the charge, so he would have been the one who was furthest away from King Saul, who was leading, uh, if you want to call it that, from the back. Apparently, there was an overabundance of honey in this forest that they had to go through to the extent that it was flowing out of the hives and flowing out onto the ground. All of the men of Israel, all of the army passed through without touching it except for Jonathan. And he did this not out of any sort of attempt to be rebellious or anything like that toward his father, but out of ignorance of what his father had ordered. 
And verse 27 here tells us that eating the honey had an immediately positive impact on Jonathan's energy and his zeal against the Philistines. It brightened his eyes, it says. But in the middle of Jonathan's brief break to take a, a quick bite of, uh, of honeycomb, uh, honey-saturated honeycomb, a fellow soldier informs him of his father's orders. Your father strictly put the people under oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food today. And that's immediately followed by the author telling us, and the people were weary. Why were they weary? Because they were under this oath. Because they were under this threat. Because they were hungry. Because they were demoralized and discouraged. But Jonathan's loyalty is right where it belongs. His loyalty is first and foremost to God. And so he responds very forthrightly and very honestly. His response is, my father has troubled the land. That's a significant statement. My father has troubled the land. What seems clear here is that Jonathan knew that his father's order was an absolutely disastrous mistake. He knew that this wasn't a command from God and that his father had no business putting such a heavy burden on God's people. What's interesting here is that this term trouble is the same term that has been used several times in Scripture up to this point to refer to people who, uh, who do something that prevents God's people from experiencing God's blessing. In the book of Joshua, for example, when Achan sinned, uh, he said to have brought trouble on Israel. Israel couldn't experience God's blessing in battle because of what Achan had done, and so Achan brought trouble on Israel. And here, Jonathan's assessment is that his father's legalistic order was preventing God's people from enjoying the blessing of God's presence and His hand in battle. So why did Saul do this? It was because he was more focused on his own agenda and his own glory than he was on God's. And because he was more focused on his own agenda and his own glory than he was on God's, he required more of the people than God did. That is to say, Saul was being a tyrant. That's what a tyrant is. A tyrant isn't just somebody who you know, rules with an iron rod. No, a tyrant is somebody who requires things that God doesn't or instructs that people do things that God forbids. That's what a tyrant is. Saul has become a tyrant. And the result is that instead of being inspired, you want an army that's inspired, right? But instead of being inspired, instead of being a motivating leader whose army fights out of, out of love and loyalty for King Saul, they're demoralized, they're, they're tired, they're fatigued, and they're fighting out of a fear of the threat of being cursed. Instead of being refreshed, the people of God are famished. Man, there are all kinds of applications there for pastors who preach messages that are just intended uh, to fill seats rather than faithfully preach the Scriptures, by the way. But there are obvious applications here for parents as well. Parents, one of the reasons that God gave you authority over your kids, you, you do know that you have authority over your kids, right? It's a, it's a thing in our day where we think that parents don't have authority over our kids. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Parents do have authority over their kids as they are growing up. But the reason, uh, one of the reasons that God gave authority 
uh, to parents over their kids is so that your children might grow up to love and to respect those whom God has placed in authority over them. If they see you having a carnal, godless religion and going to church on Sunday anyway, if they see you practicing your religion hypocritically, that is, outwardly, especially on Sunday mornings, but not practicing it inwardly, not being something that you really love, just being a mask that you put on so people don't think too poorly of you, those kids will learn. Because they see right through it. They see you every other day of the week. But they will learn to be skeptical of your authority. And not only your authority, they will learn to be skeptical, skeptical of all uh, sources of authority that God places over them. That will include everyone from teachers to law enforcement officials to employers to, if it's a, uh, if it's a girl that you have, to maybe even her spouse. The solution, the way that you avoid raising kids who are skeptical about authority and, and end up hating and defying authority, the solution to that is to be a parent who truly does love the Lord, who isn't just going through the motions, especially on Sunday morning, who isn't just putting on a religious facade for those around you. Pray that the Lord will grant you wisdom and grace for parenting and know this God has an overabundance of wisdom and in grace uh, wisdom and grace to impart unto parents and if you catch yourself being overly harsh with your children there is absolutely no shame in fact it is the right thing to do to go to your children and to ask them to forgive you to confess that you were overly harsh and to ask that they forgive you legalism is not the cure for lawlessness. Legalism does not inspire anyone. Legalism is just a heavy burden. It doesn't motivate. It demoralizes and discourages. And legalism actually only serves the purpose of stirring the flesh up to sin even more. You know that, right? That legalism doesn't produce holiness, it produces lawlessness. Legalism makes everything worse. And that's actually what we're going to see as the passage continues. Let's continue looking at verses 31 to 35. It says, They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very weary. The people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought out brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So Saul had prohibited the men of Israel from, uh, from eating uh, things that the Lord did allow on that day. And despite their weariness, and despite this instruction, the men of Israel uh, chased 
the men of uh, the Philistines uh, all the way in battle from Michmash to Aijalon, which is about 20 miles, maybe a little bit more than, than 20 miles. Not only is it more than 20 miles, but that is not uh, 20 miles of downhill smooth roads, right? It's 20 miles of terrain that was very, very difficult to navigate. Now, the text doesn't tell us this, but I have to think that the only reason, the only, the only explanation for the fact that the men of Israel were able to continue throughout the day is because God, by His grace, by His sovereign upholding grace, sustained them in battle. But upon arriving in Aijalon that evening, we're told in verse 32 that the men of Israel were so hungry that they rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Now, is there a problem with them doing that? There is. There's a big problem with them doing that. First of all, it's a violation of the covenant that God made with Noah, for starters. He instructed Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. After the flood had subsided, uh, God made this covenant. He said, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I, sh- I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. But further... It was a clear and flagrant violation of the Hebrew dietary laws. Uh, Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 to 14, for example, makes it very clear that because the blood of an animal uh, was the part that made atonement in sacrifices, the Israelites were not to eat portions of meat that had blood in them. Do you see how the legalism of Saul, how this this harsh, heavy order, the, the fake outward showing of religiosity for religiosity's sake. Do you see how it resulted in all of the people sinning against God? Legalism stirs up sin. It does not produce righteousness. And the people, therefore, confess that they have sinned to Saul in verse 33, where they tell Saul that the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And rather than recognizing that it was his own sin, it was his own foolishness that had caused all the men of his army to sin, Saul sees this as an opportunity to once again appear very, very religious outwardly. And again, this is all fake. It's just external religiosity with no power. He says, you have acted treacherously. Instead of saying something like, you know, I, I've, I've governed foolishly. I've been a tyrant. Uh, I, I, I put too heavy of a burden on the men. This was my mistake. Uh, I think that would have been more appropriate. Instead, he says, my armies acted treacherously. The men were then instructed to bring their ox or sheep and to slaughter them a, a uh, upon this big stone that Saul instructed to have brought uh, rolled into the camp, and they were instructed to eat those things without the blood. And the result was that all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there, if you want to call it that, religious uh, endeavor by constructing his first altar to the Lord, presumably out of this large stone that he has rolled into the camp. 
Matthew Henry says this. He makes an important observation. He writes that, quote, Saul was turning aside from God, and yet now he began to build altars, being most zealous, as many are, for the form of godliness when he was denying the power of it. End quote. So what is Saul missing here? What exactly is Saul getting wrong? The thing he's getting wrong is that this is all outward. It has nothing to do with his heart. It has to do with his agenda and his glory, not God's. See, his heart is, his heart is just hard as stone. But he's doing all of these outward uh, religious things that are only serving to further harden his heart. Do you realize that that's what's happening to Saul's heart as this uh, passage progresses? His heart is just getting harder and harder. How do we know that his heart was hardening? Because he was doing all of these outwardly religious things, and yet in all of these religious actions, his heart isn't softening toward the Lord. We're never told that he was grieving over his sin. We're never told that he was repenting of his foolishness with godly sorrow. Or he was consumed with zeal not for the Lord, but for Himself, for His own agenda, for His own glory. William Blakey notes of Saul in his commentary. He says, quote, he feels, that only, he feels only that his own interests as king are imperiled. It is this selfish motive that makes him determined to be more religious, end quote. It's tragic. It's tragic. He, He's convinced himself, I think, that he's doing the right thing. But it's because, the only reason he, he can convince himself of that is because his heart is just getting harder and harder. It was J.I. Packer, the great pastor and theologian who wrote uh, Knowing God, uh, one of the greatest classics to be written in our time. Uh, he said this, he said, quote, If our theology does not quicken the conscience and soften the heart, it actually hardens both. End quote. And that, brothers and sisters, that, my friends, is what makes it so deadly and so incredibly dangerous to have an outward form of religiosity, an outward form of godliness which denies the power thereof. You come to church, that's great. Maybe that is great. Maybe you come to church often, even better, fantastic. Maybe you even come weekly. The question is, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? Why are you doing it? And what are you doing with it? You hear the gospel preached every week. Praise the Lord. We need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day, as Martin Luther said. The question is, what are you doing with it? Why does it even matter to you? How's it changing your life? How is it transforming you and growing you in Christ's likeness? Are, are you believing it? Are, are you standing on God's promises? Are you applying His Word to your life? Because if your answer is yes, that's, that's great. That's what you should be doing. You're, you're softening your heart to the things of God. Praise the Lord. But if your answer is no, that you're not applying His Word to your life, that it's not making any difference in your life. Do you realize that you are only hardening your heart and mind and conscience to the things of God by exposing yourself to the things of God? 
if you won't be humbled, and if your heart won't be softened by the gospel and the things of God, your heart and your conscience will be hardened by them. There's no third way, tragically. He's doing all these outward religious things, right? He, he looks like he's being very religious. He is being very religious. The problem is it's not true religion. It's not coming from the heart. It's something that's just outwardly. What a tragedy. What a tragedy for that to happen. What started with King Saul pronouncing this unnecessarily burdensome, heavy uh, curse on anyone who defied his order has not only resulted in all the men of Israel sinning by eating meat with the blood still in it, but it has led to Saul's own sinning and the hardening of his heart. So let's ask this. What should Saul have done? He should have followed his son's example, ironically. He should have had the faith that Jonathan had, the confidence that if God is for them, nobody is going to stand against them. The confidence that Jonathan had that the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. In other words, God doesn't need our army, but he might decide to use our army if we avail ourselves. Who knows? But God and only God can save us. He should have had that kind of confidence that kind of faith. Saul isn't being guided by God because Saul doesn't want to be guided by God. Rather than wait for his priest uh, Ahijah to discern the will of the Lord, you remember that King Saul, uh, earlier on in the chapter, either grew impatient or disinterested in what God had to say. And so he's just in the middle of uh, Ahijah trying to discern the will of God. Saul instructs him, withdraw your hand. Cut it out. Forget it. Oh, how I pray that such would never be said of you and me. Because if we understand anything, anything at all, we must understand that God's thoughts on what we do are far more important than our own thoughts or than anyone else's thoughts. What God instructs matters more than anything. But because Saul wasn't guided by God, well, who was he being guided by there? Maybe by himself, we might say. By his own selfish ego and by his own ambitions and his own pursuit of his glory. Okay, that, that's undoubtedly true. Let me ask you maybe a more startling question. Do you think that he's possibly being guided by dark and demonic spirits? That's a question to consider, isn't it? Let me ask this instead. Is there any way for us to prove that he wasn't being guided by dark and demonic spirits? No, we can't. Anytime we're guided by something other than God's word, keep that in mind. Because the same question and the same proof might be asked of us. It's vitally important that we know and embrace the value of following God's Word. 
There's a reason that the psalmist uh, wrote things in Psalm 119. Uh, that's the psalm that we always start our services with. There's a reason that the psalmist wrote things in Psalm 119, such as, uh, you have or, uh, ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Verse 4. Or, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Verse 9. Or, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Verse 11. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget Get your word. Verse 16. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 24. Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. Verses 29 and 30. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Verse 38. And of course, the list goes on and on and on. This psalm is filled with the idea that God's Word must guide us. It must inform our decisions. Of course, the most famous verse of Psalm uh, 119 is verse 105, which says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What other light is there? There's none. There's none. We have God's Word. And we have God's Spirit within us that instructs us and helps us to understand God's ways as revealed in His Word. Could King Saul have truthfully said any of those things that we read in Psalm 119? No, he couldn't have. But you, what about you? Could you truthfully say any of those things that we just looked at in Psalm 119? Can you, in all truthfulness and sincerity, say any of those things. It's vitally important that we know and that we embrace the value of following God's Word. But even prior to that, you have to love God's Word. If you don't love God's Word, you're not going to care about what it says or what value there might be in it. So before that, even prior to that, you must love God's Word because the truth is you aren't going to follow something that you don't love, something that you don't value. But even prior to that, you must do something that Saul didn't do. Some, you must have something that Saul didn't have. You must love the Lord who has given us His written Word. If you don't love the Lord, you won't care what He has said. You won't care that the Bible is God's Word breathed out through human authors. And consequently, you won't be guided in what He has instructed in His Word. But what did Jesus say about our relationship to his commandments? Did he say, if you love me, don't worry about my commandments? No, what he said is the, actually the opposite. He said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Where do we find this contrast between Saul on the one hand, who places such a, a heavy burden on his people, and Jesus, the true and better and everlasting King, who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. You know whose yoke wasn't easy and whose yoke and burden wasn't light? King Saul's. 
Do you know who ends up being weary and, and heavy laden? Those who have this external, outward form of godliness, but who deny its power. You end up on a hamster wheel of, of religiosity and, and works and trying to keep up your appearance, but you'll only be able to do it for so long. Eventually, you will grow weary and heavy laden. You will grow tired. The mask that you wear on Sunday mornings will eventually start to slip off. Either you'll start missing church on a regular basis, or even when you come into church, you just won't be paying attention. You won't care. You don't need to make up and follow a bunch of rules to come to Jesus. You don't need to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. But you do need to see your need for Him. You do need to know that sin is a burdensome master. That sin will deprive you. That sin will lead you just into more and more and more sin. Even if you are looking outwardly like you're very religious and morally upright. But Saul is a picture of that. You need to know. You need to believe and trust that Jesus is the only one who can free you from bondage to that master. If you want to come to Jesus, as you should, you must simply come in faith. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to follow a bunch of rules before you come to Jesus. John Calvin said this, faith is like an empty, open hand stretched out toward God with End quote. That, friends, is how you avoid being caught in this deadly pitfall in which you have this form of, of godliness, this outward religion that is absolutely powerless, a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. Because once you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will then abide in you, will dwell in you, and will empower you to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. But you must come to Jesus, and you must walk with Jesus humbly recognizing your need, recognizing that He alone can meet that need. You need a Savior, a Savior who will cleanse you of your sin, a Savior who won't place heavy yokes and heavy toilsome burdens on you. You need a Savior who can free you from the impossibly heavy burden of empty religiosity. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. He alone is the cure for carnal, godless religiosity. Our doctrine and our deeds, that is our, our, our beliefs and our behavior, need to be informed by and guided by God's Word, enabled by His Spirit, and followed in sincere humility. And so my prayer for you today is that you would taste and see that the Lord is good that you would know by your own experience how sweet it is to walk with Jesus, to know Jesus, to be loved by Jesus, to learn from Jesus, and to find rest for our weary and heavy laden hearts in Jesus. He alone is the cure for carnal, godless religiosity. It's powerless without Him. It's pointless and vain without Him. But with Him, that's where true religion is found. That's where you find the power 
that leads to a truly transformed life from the heart, not from the outward, but from the heart. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word, for the way that it instructs us, for the way that it guides us. And we thank you for sending the Son who died to reconcile us to you, who in turn asked you to send the Holy Spirit. And so you and the the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to abide in us, to dwell within us, to guide us. And not only to, to, to guide us, but to empower us and enable us to live in a manner that is truly worthy of our calling. Because it's not just an outward facade. It's not just an outward powerless religiosity. It's something that's driven by our love for you. At the same time, we're reminded that you loved us first. We thank you that by your grace, you drew us to Christ. That by your grace, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and guides us and leads us, gives us understanding of your word. And so we pray that as we consider your word in this passage that we've studied today, O Lord, forbid that we would be just hearers. We pray that by your grace, we would be doers. We pray that we would know you, love you, and serve you truly. For you alone are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Teach us, O Lord, to be a people who are consumed with your agenda and your glory and who are willing to set our agendas and our glories aside, laying them down, taking up your agendas for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.